This is a Federal News Network podcast. Passwords are a pain in the neck for computer users and easy for hackers to work out. Yet they persist, despite the availability of alternates. Now tech vendor Cisco reports a sharp rise in the use of biometrics and other forms of multi-factor login and greater interest by IT executives to move past passwords altogether. Here with more, Cisco's Global Advisory Chief Information Security Officer, Dave Lewis. Mr. Lewis, good to have you on. Thank you for having me. So this was a study of executives in IT, and it seems like the pandemic, from what I read in the report, is maybe the forcing factor to finally move past passwords which is something IT executives have been talking about for decades, it seems. Yeah, we've, we've been stuck with this uh, since basically 1962 when it was implemented as a control at MIT because students were stealing high-end compute time from each other and the professor there said, okay, this is enough of this and put that control in place. And we've been living with that as a security quote-unquote control ever since. And the problem is it's basically equivalent to using a house key to get into your house, right? You Sure, you can lock the door, but if you lose your key and somebody else uses it, it doesn't mean that the person coming through the front door is the right one. So we have to look at ways that we can, you know, effectively democratize security. And by virtue of that, I mean, making it as easy for people to, you know, do their jobs without having to worry about security for the sake of security. So we want to make sure it's done in a safe and secure fashion. So multi-factor authentication, biometrics, passwordless, these are all controls that we can put in place to help improve things. And yes, the pandemic has absolutely driven a lot of this uh, conversation because you have all these people working remotely all over the globe and passwords have limited utility and the attackers know this. And when I say attackers, I mean hackers with criminal intent. They target folks because they're playing on their insecurities as a result of this new paradigm that we find ourselves living in. And most of the multi-factor authentication systems, and a lot of them came in with people using VPNs more, is still your password. And then you get a generated code that lasts 60 seconds from one of the vendors that does that. But biometrics hasn't really seemed to catch on that much in the logon space. Is it necessary to get past that six-digit code, or is that good enough, or is there even a better way? There, there's definitely better ways. There's push-based technology that will send a, uh, a message to your phone that you could authenticate with a device that you've already been enrolled with. But more importantly, a lot of the devices that we see in the market today have uh, fingerprint scanners built into them. So this is becoming socialized with the consumers at large, and these consumers work in enterprises, and they work in federal government space, and they all are taking that message into their own organization saying, well, I can do this on my phone at home to get into my banking. Why can't I do this for work as well? So the message is spreading in that regard. What about facial? Because a lot of the phones now... The smartphones do facial. Yeah, and facial recognition, absolutely. That's another biometric factor as well. And the thing that people have to understand is these scans are not being held by some corporation that can be accessed. These, this data is stored in what's called a secure enclave on the device. So when it's stored there, that means people can't get at it other than yourself. So it really does reduce the risk to the individual as fundamentally as well as the uh, the enterprise or the government agency. So they don't have to worry about marshalling that data because that's one of the biggest problems we have to deal with today is organizations being good stewards of the data that they have. Got it. And so what is the persistence of the password then when all these things are so eminently out there? Well, you know, humans have opposable thumbs, but we haven't really got that far down the road. And we are very used to uh, doing things a certain way. And we are you know, fundamentally not good with change. And this is one of those things where we have to make it clear to the wider audience that this is a good change. This is going to make life easier. You know, I was a customer of our product back before I ever joined the company, and I realized very quickly the value proposition of being able to do something as simple as, you know, scanning with my thumbprint to get in 
but it also has to be clear that this is done in a safe and secure manner. This is not just simply, you know, oh, we're doing this purely for the sake of convenience. We're doing this to help those that are doing, you know, working in finance, working in human resources, all the folks that are not technically savvy, you know, and they want to be secure as well, but they don't necessarily have the capacity to understand how to ask for that. So we have to, you know, as security practitioners, be the adult in the room. But as an organization, there is also a lot of built-in, I guess, infrastructure around the password. It can be stored in Active Directory and other similar systems like that, either on-premises or in the cloud. How do you store someone's face and disenroll them when they leave the organization, for example? There's more than just alternative to password because of the infrastructure built up around password. Exactly. You know, and that is a sunk cost that every organization on the planet that has a, a password control, they have to realize that they are figuring out how they're going to move from point A to point B. And when they're looking towards, you know, changing to multi-factor authentication, biometrics and what have you further down the road, they are not storing that data as you know, the fingerprints or the facial uh, scans in their own systems, but they do have the account in their system so that when somebody departs, uh, say a federal organization or a company or what have you, they can deactivate that account and then that cuts off their access. The scan of the face, the fingerprint are resident on the device. So that is not something the company or the agency has to worry about because they're not actually stewards of that particular data set. And from what I understand, facial recognition is getting so good it can almost distinguish between twins. It, it is actually fundamentally doing exactly that. Um, you know, at one point, my uh, daughter was able to use the face, facial recognition to scan into my wife's device. Uh, that is no longer possible. They are, you know, they were very close at one point, and now it's definitely a case of the phone goes, yeah, you're not who I think you are. Yeah, it reminds me of the old ad, only the hairdresser can tell for sure. We're speaking with Dave Lewis. He's Global Advisory Chief Information Security Officer at Cisco. And I want to get to the survey, which came through the duo security part of Cisco. What what did you find? It seems like there's a definitely a movement afoot almost to get past the password in an organized way in a lot of large organizations. Yeah, a lot of organizations are seeing an increase in you know biometrics, for example, like we were talking about with fingerprint scans and facial recognition, about you know 71% bump in the number of devices that actually have biometrics enabled because, you know, handset man manufacturers are realizing that this is definitely the way forward. And this is going to help socialize this with a wider audience as well. We're seeing passwordless, uh, pardon me, passwordless authentication has increased as well, uh, roughly fivefold since 2019. So it is definitely uh, being adopted for most organizations as something that they have to realize they're moving towards. Because, you know, the house key analogy is salient for most organizations. When you look at the amazing number of data breaches we've seen over the years, uh, there's a great data visualization website out there called informationisbeautiful.net, and they do uh, presentations of all sorts of data sets. One of them is data breaches. Now, if you go back about five years, there were just a few bubbles on the screen, but now it's an absolute wall of data breaches. So organizations realize that they have to do a better job because when the attackers get these credentials, they'll then replay them against other sites in an attempt to you know gain more access. And there's a huge financial incentive for them because the old way of hacking into a website and defacing it and saying, you know, uh, greets to all my friends has limited utility. That has really, it's really manifested into a major industry uh, on the criminal side, at least. Now, public policy for federal agencies coming from the Biden administration as they try to update security policy for agencies is calling specifically for two-factor authentication. 
but it doesn't say what the two factors are. If you eliminate the password and go to, say, facial or biometric, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, what, that's Duo's business, do you also need a second factor? Can multi-factor be that six-digit code plus your face but no password, or how does that work? Well, it, honestly, it really is less about the technology and more about the requirements of the agency or uh, enterprise. So, you know, if you're making teddy bears or centrifuges, you're going to have a different risk profile. So it really boils down to what is the outcome for that organization, because the technology is there. You can tailor it according to your requirements. And the organizations that are out there have to sit down and say, you know, before we talk to a vendor, we want to know what is the outcome we are trying to achieve? What are we trying to protect in our organization? So, yes, you want to do all sorts of different levels. Yes, you can. But do you also want to alienate your workforce? You want to make it as easy as possible. And this is why I talk about democratization of security. And passwordless is a great example. It is a two-factor authentication as well because it is, you know, who you are and, you know, what you have. So you have to authenticate with your thumbprint and then it is done in the background, transparent to the user. So the authentication mechanisms are still there. It's just now it is easier for the end user to get their job done and, you know, fundamentally focus on their core competencies. So you're saying that if you use facial or thumbprint, then you have two-factor inherently because you have the device and you have the thumb. Correct. Yes, because someone else with my device couldn't use my thumb, nor would my thumb work on someone else's device. Aha. So that if is, you That is the plan, yes. Got it. Okay, now I understand. So if, if you insist on that six-digit code, really you're backing into three-factor, and that might be overkill in a lot of instances. And, and that's just it. You want to make sure that usability is a factor because you are dealing with the human element. And if we don't take that into consideration, then people are going to find ways around systems. That's why we see skunkwork projects spin up. That's why we see you know people finding new ways to get into systems so they can get their jobs done. It's not even so much out of malice. It's out of, you know, they want to remove the roadblocks. So we have to make this as seamless as possible. Dave Lewis is Global Advisory Chief Information Security Officer at Cisco. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to that study at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at 
Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up. Uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right. And you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, 
Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.